One Thing. Welcome to the One Thing Podcast. On this platform, we ask pain researchers one simple question. What's one thing you want people challenged by pain to know about? This episode features Dr. Andrea Ferlin from the University of Toronto. One Thing. What's one thing you want people challenged by pain to know? Yeah. I want people to know one thing. And that is that chronic pain is not the same thing as acute pain. And uh, a lot of people confuse them and they think uh, chronic pain is just a continuation of acute pain. But they are two different diseases. They are two different things. And the things that we use to treat acute pain, they do not work the same for chronic pain. And the way that I explain this to my patients is I explain to them the alarm system of a house. Uh, And uh, this is, if you put an alarm system of your house, you want it to trigger and make noise when there is a burglar, a fire, smoke, or a flood in the basement. And so you install sensors right on the walls and the windows and on the, on the, on close to the floor. And when they, when they something wrong, they will make noise. So that's acute pain. We have those sensors in our body to make noise, which is called pain. So it has to be unpleasant. Otherwise nobody would go and seek care. And, um, but then when you have chronic pain, in a lot of cases, it doesn't mean that there is a fire in the house. There, is, there was, probably there was a fire in the house, a lot of smoke, but now the sensors are triggering and they are going off in the absence of a, a new fire because there is a short circuit somewhere or they're just sensitized. And so instead of calling the fire truck, the police or the ambulance, you need to call the alarm system company to come and fix the alarm system of your house. So that's what chronic pain is in the majority of cases. And we need to stop looking for the causes, you know, in the periphery. Sometimes there is still some inflammation going on, that's okay. But we also need to treat the pain system, retrain the pain system, how to feel pain normal again. And I tell my patients, when the pain system is dysfunctional, there is a name for this, it's called nociplastic pain. But then when the pain system is dysfunctional, the person is very tired of this pain. This pain is going on all the time. It's almost like living in a house where the alarm system is going off all the time, very loud because the volume is amplified. Nobody in the house hears that noise. And you go from doctor to doctor, they examine you and they say, I can't find anything wrong. You must be going crazy. So really, that is really what my message is. There is a real problem. If you are feeling pain, your pain is real. And if you're feeling pain, it might be because your pain system is deregulated and the doctors, the healthcare professionals are not trained to detect that disease because it's a new concept. We are learning this in the last 20 years, so it didn't make into medical school yet. So it's a new concept. Your doctors, your healthcare professionals are trying the best examining your joints and MRIs, but the problem may not be there. It's in the pain system. So my message for you is a message of hope. It is curable, it is treatable. You can retrain the pain system when you have chronic pain and feel so much better. 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This episode features Dr. Rachel Zofnis from the University of California, San Francisco. One thing. What's the one thing that you want people challenged by pain to know? There are so many things that I want people with pain to know. I would say the most important thing is that pain is never, ever a purely biomedical problem. And by that, I mean, it's never exclusively due to anatomy and physiology, no matter what you're told. And people in pain, including me, get told that all the time, but that is a big fat lie. Pain is actually this biopsychosocial phenomenon, which is a big word that's actually easy to distill down. And what that means is pain lives in the middle of these three big domains of life as everything to do with human health does. So of course there's biological and biomedical components of pain, like tissue damage and system dysfunction and inflammation. And that's very important of course to pain, but there's also the psychological domain of pain. And that has a lot of stigma around it, understandably, because when you talk about psychology with people living with pain, understandably we hear like it's all in your head or this is just stress or anxiety. And that's very dismissive of pain. But when we talk about biopsychosocial, we're not talking about that. We're never saying that pain is all in your head. What we're saying is that neuroscience shows that the things you think and the things you feel affect your pain 100% of the time. So neuroscience says that cognitions and beliefs and attentional processes can adjust pain volume. The more stressed out and anxious and sad and depressed we are, the higher pain volume goes and the worse we feel. And the opposite is also true. The more positive emotions, the more relaxed and calm we are, the happier and more joyful we are, the lower pain volume will be. And also in this psych bubble, we have coping behaviors. So how we respond to our pain also matters. So people with pain often, including me, stay inside and stay in bed and don't move and don't get off the couch and don't see friends and don't get outside because we think that that's what pain is telling us to do. But it turns out that that also makes pain feel worse. And the treatment for chronic pain is counterintuitive. It's doing the opposite of that. To get your life back and actually turn pain volume down, we need to start doing things like pacing for pain. So little bits of activity at a time, seeing friends, uh, moving our bodies, engaging in pleasurable activities. So all these things are important to pain. And then we have the social bubble or the sociological domain of pain. And that in my mind is like the everything else domain. So we've got socioeconomic status and access to care and race and ethnicity and family and friends. And if you're a kid, parents matter. There's a huge parent component we know in pediatric chronic pain and also context and environment matter a lot to your brain when it's deciding whether or not to make pain and how much. So my message always to people living with pain is it's more simple and more complex than we're usually told when we go to the doctor. Pain is this very um, integrated experience, like everything to do with human health and everything matters when it comes to pain. Fantastic. And so I guess just for someone practically, like if they're watching this and they're like, oh, I've never heard this before. What do you recommend they should do about that? Yeah. So I like to think about this as a recipe. So just as there's a recipe for baking brownies, right? Like we all know you have to have certain ingredients in a certain amount, in a certain order, in the oven, in a certain amount of time. Otherwise the recipe doesn't come out. So this, the same is true for pain. So there's always a recipe for high pain and there's always a recipe for low pain. 
and it's always a biopsychosocial recipe. And what I mean by that is like, when I think about my own pain, I think about the things in the bio bubble, but I also think about now that I know about pain, what's in the psych bubble. So I notice that my high pain recipe, my pain often flares when I'm really stressed out, when I haven't moved my body and I've been sitting for long periods of time, when I'm not eating well, when my sleep is crap. You know, so I'm always thinking, I'm not seeing my friends in the social bubble and I'm not engaging in my life. So I'm always thinking about what are the ingredients that are in my high pain recipe? And the reason that's so important if people wanna change pain is because changing your pain to a low pain recipe is quite literally the opposite. So if I'm thinking about it and I recognize that my pain flares are correlated with poor sleep and poor nutrition and high stress and not moving my body, then what that means is for a low pain recipe, I have to actively engage in the opposite. And, and usually we need support with that. Like everyone with chronic pain deserves support. I feel very strongly about that. And there's lots of ways of getting support like PTs and OTs and pain psychologists do a lot of these things where they target the biopsychosocial recipe. And there's no shame in this game. There's a lot of stigma around seeing someone like me, I'm a pain psychologist, but, but once we understand pain as a biopsychosocial problem, we know that it requires a biopsychosocial solution. And that means yeah. that PT and OT and biofeedback and pain psychology are part of creating a low pain recipe. Yeah, fantastic. And, and in terms of just expectations on when these things will have an effect, like they all sound nice, but someone might go out and try it today and then their pain's actually worse. What do you say to that? Like, is this a long-term strategy or does this start working today? <laughs> um, if there was a magic pill, I would be giving it to everybody. Um, the answer is every brain is different and every body is different. So, you know, I see patients and in six sessions, true story, their pain is gone. Like that happens sometimes. And then I see people for longer periods of time. Like for me, it probably took like a year before I saw real change. My pain is like 99% under control now. And, but it's different for every person who comes into my office. Everyone is different. Everyone's brain is different. It's like, um, we know that that's just, whether it's, you know, your diet or any sort of disease, the process is different across people. So I wish there was sort of one answer, but but it is, it always is an investment of time. Um, and I think, you know, we all sort of want a quick and easy answer. Who doesn't? Everyone wants pain to go away. It's such an aversive, unpleasant experience. Um, but in my mind, you know, the, the more wide we cast our net and the more resources we have, the more likely it is to go away quicker. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. We really appreciate hearing your one thing, which was just mind-blowing. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. One thing. This episode features Professor Alan Finley from Dalhousie University. One thing. Hi, Alan. What's one thing that you want people challenged by pain to know? Well, we deal with children and, and teenagers, as you know, in our clinic. And one of the things that we often have to talk to parents about is that we don't want them or their teenager to cross anything off their list of things they might want to do in their life. We don't want anybody to assume that they're not going to be able to follow a certain career or do a certain sport or activity or uh, whatever in the future. Um, pain in children and adolescents, even chronic complex pain can resolve or be managed or controlled. Um, I think we do better than 
in adults in that regard. So there's no reason why anybody should say, I'll never be able to be whatever they want to be um, just because of the pain they have right now. So is that, I guess, the fact that you're saying you, you say this frequently in a clinical setting suggests to me that people's natural tendency is to go, oh, like throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is going to ruin our whole future. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, people uh, will sometimes get uh, scary information from the internet. Uh, or they'll see posts from people in their later years who describe pain and pain disability for a long period. And then that becomes a very frightening and, and uh, debilitating message that they can get. Uh, so that's one of our challenges sometimes is to make sure that people keep their goals in place that they look forward and they they look forward with an expectation that they're going to be able to do the things they want to do yeah. and, and if someone's watching this and going oh well that sounds nice but like what's the next immediate step what would you say you know you never know what's going to happen in the future but um there's no reason at this time to be crossing things off your list. Uh, you may find out in five years that such and such a, and a career just isn't working out for you because of ongoing issues, but don't make that assumption now. Don't cross that off your list now. Keep working towards what you want to do as, a, as an adolescent Keep working towards the things you see yourself doing in the future and, you know, keep hope going. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Alan. Um, it was really insightful and useful. One thing. This episode features Dr. Erma Karen from the University of South Australia. One thing. Thanks so much for joining us, Emma. What is one thing you want people challenged by persistent pain to know? Thanks, Millie. If I have to pick one thing, it's that both within countries and between countries, there are really big differences in people's opportunities to lead healthy lives. And many of these differences are avoidable. When we think about what makes someone healthy or reasons why someone experiences persistent pain, we often think about their health behaviours, possibly their diet or their exercise habits maybe their genetics or their access to and use of healthcare services. But whether someone is healthy or not importantly is importantly influenced by the social determinants of health. <laughs> These are the factors such as a person's income and social status, their educational level, the characteristics of their home or work environment or even their neighbourhood maybe their race, their gender, or their social support network. These are the conditions in which people grow, live, work, and age. And they're really important determinants of a person's experience of persistent pain and their chances of recovering well. So for people that do have persistent pain and might be thinking, oh, these are just factors that are sort of out of my control um, and can't do much to 
help or address. Why is it important that we consider the social determinants of health in pain management specifically? Understanding the role of the social determinants of health is really important for all public health problems because it recognises that not all of society is burdened equally. And it also requires need for concerted efforts to try and even out these differences. The unequal experiences of persistent pain arise for, for lots of reasons. However, when these differences are, are avoidable and when they're also unfair and unjust, they're referred to as health inequities. Mm -hmm. The public health field talks about improving health equity by taking action on the social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. This primarily involves making changes at the level of government policy and systems, but action to reduce health inequities can also happen in clinical settings and through interventions that aim to address the health of the communities in which people live. Beautiful. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more specifically about your research and where that's heading to, I guess, investigate the social determinants of health in pain a little better? Sure. I think that recognising and addressing health inequities is a really important direction for the pain field at the moment. One of the crucial things that will facilitate this is routinely collecting a comprehensive range of equity relevant data in pain studies. My current work is leading a large global community of researchers, patient partners and key stakeholders to reach agreement on a minimum data set of, for the collection of data relevant to the social determinants of health that we hope will be broadly implemented into all human pain research. Well, all the best with your research. Can't wait to hear more about it in the future and what your findings will be. Thank you so much for joining us at One Thing. Thanks, Millie. One Thing. This episode features Dr. Catalejo Lee Mikazzo from Neuroscience Research Australia. One Thing. What is one thing you want people challenged by pain to know? I'm going to answer this question in the, the context of phantom limb pain, since that's what I primarily deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So one thing that I'd like people challenged by phantom limb pain to know is that phantom limb pain is common. It is associated with various biopsychosocial factors and it is best managed using an interdisciplinary approach. To date, there is some suggestion that phantom limb pain may be driven across different parts of the central nervous system, but there isn't a study that really pinpoints the exact mechanisms that drive phantom limb pain. So I think that would be a starting point for us to understand and on the basis of understanding then we can design a treatment that specifically targets such specific mechanisms and then we hope by doing so we could eradicate phantom limb pain once and for all that's an ambitious plan hopefully we'll get to that in the near future we need to treat pain early so of course, this might be difficult for patients who come in for emergency amputation because they are unexpected in the first place, but we could potentially do something for patients who have elective surgeries. They are scheduled for surgery, and before then, there are many things that we could do leading up to an amputation surgery. Also, one thing that we've used quite a lot in South Africa is community based workers. So there's other people who provide care beyond the primary health system. 
So they go into their communities and deal with patients in the comfort of their own homes. And I think this is mostly relevant in a case of people who are with amputations, most of which are really old and they have challenges with ambulation and they're usually confined to their home. So if you have a healthcare worker, go in there, maybe to mobilize them and to help them with some of their needs, we could factor in a component of education there to make sure that a patient is up to speed with regards to their own self-management. We could do this before amputation because we would know by then that they are scheduled for an amputation and this education would then continue even after amputation. I believe having a program of that nature could potentially make a, or bring about a significant change and improvement with regards to patient outcomes in this group. One thing. This episode features Jillie Bond from Brunel University, London. One thing. What is one thing you want people challenged by pain to know? Well, I think it's really important for people who are experiencing pain at the moment to know that there is not one treatment out there for them. Um, and a lot of people are searching to find the one thing that's going to really change their situation, the operation, the injection, the medication, the physio, the any other treatments. That one treatment is going to change things. But what we know from the evidence and what we know from research is that actually um, persistent pain changes, which is really hopeful. But that also it um, there are such a huge amount of treatments that can change pain. So there isn't just one thing for every person that's going to um, knock pain on the head or really make a big change to you. There are thousands of little things and everyone is different. So what works for one person is not going to be the same for someone else. But there are some commonalities. So working on things like your sleep, getting some movement or exercise that uh, um, makes you feel good, moving in a way that feels good making sure your nutrition is good are some really basic steps that you can take. But what we know is that it's uh, when you want to change a pain experience, we start by doing a thousand little things. And all of that just helps to bring down some of the, um, the symptoms associated with pain and starting to make a difference to your pain experience. That's so great. So um, since there are thousands of little things we can be doing right now, um, what are some little things uh, or strategies that people can use right in this moment if they've got pain that can help them perhaps reduce their pain or gradually get better over time? So some of the really simple stuff that is um, often overlooked, um, especially in persistent pelvic pain, which is where I work most of the time is the little things like making sure that you're moving your bowels comfortably and when you're taking a lot of pain medication it's really easy to get constipated but um, doing things to really change how your bowels move easily by changing your nutrition so you're getting a lot of fluid you're getting more fiber and then the position that you have a poo in um, can really help your pain and that sounds weird but it can because if we can just calm down each one of our organs um, inside our pelvic um, bowl, inside the pelvic space, that can really have a, a massive knock-on effect on your general pain. Everything is functioning happily. So getting your bowel to calm down, making sure that your bladder is um, working calmly, you don't feel like you're urgent, not having to rush, 
simple tiny little things like that reducing your caffeine intake as well as um getting your yourself moving trying different positions trying different exercises and it doesn't have to be um a high level exercise it can be going for a walk walking up a hill walking down a hill whatever feels good to you yoga some strain uh, some some stretches some qigong but little things build up over time and sometimes just getting the basics right can make a massive difference to how you experience your pain and how certainly how you experience flares and help them to bring down amazing well thank you so much jilly for joining us my pleasure one thing this episode features tim atkinson a writer editor and journalist one thing. Hi, Tim. What's one thing that you want people challenged by pain to know? Right. Okay. One thing. The one most important thing that I would say is that you have got agency. You have got some element of control. We in the um, patient community have been educated inculcated with the idea that we are passive recipients of medical experts of pharmacological interventions and all the stuff that the experts the medics will give to us in order to cure what we come to you guys with but the one thing that i found that has been most helpful in unlocking the key to my own patient self-management has been the idea that I come to this with something that I can do and that I can control. And it came about in the most bizarre way imaginable as a result of research for the book that I wrote, you know, the memoir of my own pain journey, Where Does It Hurt?, which came out in um, in 2021. And I met somebody who uh, I approached, um, somebody who was... Um, uh, how can I put this delicately, who was um, very uh, engaged in the whole world of uh, pain as pleasure. It was something <laughs> that I kind of came out tangentially, but then as soon as I did, became absolutely and utterly engaging and fascinating because he was somebody who had a totally different approach to pain um, than, than me and than every other patient that I had any um, any experience of or contact with because she enjoyed pain, literally. There was suddenly a, a light bulb moment that suddenly kind of clicked and, and uh, I realised that um, in, her, in her situation, she enjoyed pain and she could benefit from the pain that she experienced because she felt in control of it. And it was the realization that there was actually an element of my own pain management that I could control, that I could build upon, and that I could, um, you know, um, uh, really engage with, that started me on the journey that has led to my um, my own sort of pain self management over the last five years, which has been transformative. Fascinating. Well, thanks. I think you've at least provoked some curiosity in some people <laughs> watching this and listening to this. So I hope um, so. thank you again for your time, Tim. Thank you. One thing. This episode features Professor Denise Harrison from the University of Melbourne. One thing. Denise, thank you for being here. 
What is one thing you want people challenged by pain to know? All my research is about babies. So babies cannot voice the fact that they're challenged by pain. But we know that babies are exposed to a lot of painful procedures. Even newborn babies have vaccinations and heel pricks. But sick babies is really where my research has come from. Sick babies, preterm babies have many hundreds of painful procedures over the course of their hospitalization. So the main thing that babies are challenged by are needle related painful procedures. And do you have any advice for um, parents of young babies so that they can help their children? Yes. So the great news is there's three main things with a lot of evidence that support the fact that they reduce pain in babies. So if babies are well enough and are breastfeeding, breastfeeding during the needles. So that's during these newborn heel pricks that are done or during vaccinations, even up to around one year of age, if the babies are feeding. If babies are too sick to feed or they're not able to breastfeed or families aren't happy to breastfeed during the painful procedures or aren't there during the painful procedures, just holding the baby's skin to skin. So that can also be done by the father or other caregivers. So holding the baby's skin to skin against the parent's chest while the heel prick is being done or while the vaccinations are being done, reduce pain. So when they can't occur, again, when parents are not there or babies are too sick to come out of their, their cot, the other thing is very small, just a drop of sweet solutions. So sucrose or glucose, just a drop on their tongue a bit before the heel lance or their needle reduces pain in babies. And there is so much evidence for these three main strategies. I'm glad you're doing this work. Um, and I'm really grateful that you came and spoke to us today. Thank you. Thank you. One thing. This episode features Trudy Monsell from the Princess Alexandra Hospital. One thing. Thanks, Trudy. So what's one thing that you want people challenged by pain to know? Uh, I think the the main thing is that there's lots of people out there that really want to help you um, and really want to help you to help yourself um, and help to make your life better and those around you better. So there's, don't be alone. There's lots of people around. For so many people, particularly with chronic pain, they feel that they're the only one in the world that's got this, you know, that they're, and they're incredibly lonely with that that pain, you know, and for a lot of them to have been told, look, you know, sorry, there's not anything more surgically or medically we can do to help you with your pain. We've got to, you know, help you to live with this. That is an incredibly lonely thing for them, you know, and I think just sometimes having someone listen and acknowledge that, yeah, this is awful, um, but we can help um, and we can help you to help you. I think because people with chronic pain feel so alone um, and they feel somewhat defeated and they're frustrated, I think sometimes they just need someone to listen to them and say, it's okay, this is awful, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't help but think that like there's other, if you compare pain to other conditions mm. that are more like visible, mm. it 
yeah that the invisibleness makes things harder I don't know do you think do you see that in your clinic absolutely um um, people say sometimes I get so frustrated when someone says hey Trudy you're looking well well actually I'm having a really awful day today and you can't you can't see that you don't know how much pain I've got but I actually feel awful today and it's so frustrating when someone says hey you're looking good today yeah and that that silent that um that invisibleness you know they might be feeling absolutely wretched uh, but someone says hey you look good and and to them it invalidates I think how they feel yeah if someone's listening to this and hearing okay, there are people out there who can help me. Yep. What's the very, very first step? If this is a completely new idea, what should they do? Um, I think ask for help. Um, don't suffer silently. Don't, don't try and do it all by yourself. Because most people who've got persistent pain, people who've got cancer pain, a lot of people with acute pain, have tried to fix it themselves. And sometimes they just need a bit of a hand. Um, so... Come and see someone, um, be proactive, uh, do the different things like, you know, every day you come across people and, you know, my my niece's partner's one, you know, has a, a persistent pain problem, shoveled, you know, two tonnes of, of earth round last weekend. And when I said to him, so how are you now? And he said, I'm suffering for it. We need to talk about the principles of pacing again, mate. You know, listen to what people do. Give it a try. Don't just say, no, that won't work. Give it a try. Give it a shake. You're never going to know until you try. Great. That's really encouraging. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your one thing. One thing. This episode features Joyce McSwan from the Gold Coast Primary Health Network. One thing. What's one thing you want people challenged by pain to know? I think the biggest and most important thing is that they're not alone. Pain is incredibly isolating. Mm-hmm. And with all the incredible medicines we have these days, with all the incredible interventions that we could possibly access and give them, um, really the human touch is still incredibly important. So I think that key message that you are not alone is super important from the clinician to deliver at possibly every interaction if they can, every touch point. It just is the message that's not said enough in in this day and age. We get very focused on obviously, um, you know, what we're there to do and our clinical expertise, no doubt. But from the other side of the receiver's side, they want to know that you're on this journey with them. So the one thing that I would absolutely love every patient to know who is walking this journey of pain is that I'm there to walk it with them. They're not alone. Um, And I'd really love to influence that as much as I can. That, That one message that will not tire from being heard. Um, and that's that, that one thing. Great. Well, thank you, Joyce, for sharing your one thing with us. We greatly appreciate your time. One thing. One Thing is powered by the Australian Pain Society. For more information about One Thing, all of the video and podcast content, or to nominate a speaker for next season, check out onething.painsci.org. That's onething.painsci.org, or search One Thing on social media platforms.